Hey, true crime fanatics, I'm Jake Barton, creator of the history storytelling podcast called Historium, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything that you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So, if you already have a podcast, or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaldigsaw.com dream to sign up, and the first month is on me. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. And now... Onto the show. Before we get started, I need to provide you with this warning. This is going to be the first part of a three part series. The details of the story include graphic details involving gun violence, stabbings, and innocent people being run down by a moving vehicle, and may be disturbing to listen to. And much of the content of these three episodes will contain the writings of the perpetrator of this crime and it contains a great deal of vitriol and hateful words, filled with derogatory and disparaging language aimed mostly at women, but also infused with themes surrounding racism and homophobia, much of which I'm going to paraphrase or omit altogether. There's also sexually explicit content as well, so this would not be suitable for young listeners, nor is it suitable for work. Listener discretion is advised. Dreamers, we have made it to episode 50, and in a couple of weeks we are going to reach our first anniversary of the day we dropped episode number one. I want to take this time to thank you all for coming along for me on this adventure. A year ago, I literally jumped this whole thing up, which is why dreaming is in the title. It was meant to be something that you can listen to day and night, perhaps something you could fall asleep to, because... That was one of the main things I listened to podcasts for, to doze off at night. It brought me a great deal of comfort listening to podcasts, and it distracted me from my thoughts, and I'd just drift away. And I wanted to bring the same to all of you. It has been a tremendous pleasure, and I am grateful for all of you who listen and support this show on social media, as well as on Patreon, for that There are no words that could truly express how grateful I am. So without further ado, let's get on with episode 50. There is a lot that I want to talk about, so let's dive right in. Sometime on the afternoon, and then into the evening of May 23rd, 2014, Elliot Oliver Robertson Roger embarked on a murderous rampage that would become known as the Isla Vista killings. 
Isla Vista is a south-facing community in Santa Barbara, California that sits atop a beachside plateau about 30 feet or 9 meters in elevation with the bluff separating it from the beach. The majority of its residents are college students from the University of California at Santa Barbara or from Santa Barbara City College. Roger commenced his attacks within the confines of his own apartment, a place he shared with two other young men, 20-year-old Weilan Wang and 20-year-old Chen Hong, and a friend of theirs, 19-year-old George Chen, would be involved in the incident at their apartment as well. All three were students at UC Santa Barbara. Dreamers, these three young men, these students, they were butchered. Weihan was stabbed 15 times and had 23 incision-type wounds to the head, neck, chest, back, and to both his left and right arms and hands. Chang was stabbed 25 times and suffered 12 incision wounds to the head, neck, chest, back, and both his left and right arms and hands. And George, the one victim that did not reside at the apartment, he was stabbed 94 times and he had 11 incision type wounds to the head, neck, chest, back, and both left and right hands and arms. They all tried, in vain, to defend their lives from their attacker wielding a knife at them. So how did Roger manage to overtake these three men in the manner in which he did? Well, from what investigators were able to glean from the evidence at the crime scene, it looked as if Roger laid in wait for them, that they did not arrive at the apartment at the same time. They came one by one. And, one by one, Roger, waiting on the other side of the door, attacked them as they came through. It was apparent that there were some barely visible bloodstains in the main hallway outside the apartment door, which indicated that one or more of the stabbing victims had been attacked as he was coming through the threshold of the doorway. And because investigators found a bath towel soaked in blood, along with discarded bloodied paper towels in the bathroom, this evidence led them to believe that Roger, after killing each victim, cleaned the hallway of any obvious blood so the entranceway would be inconspicuous. Weihan and Chang's bodies were discovered in the bedroom they shared, and George's body was found in the bathroom. That's how he did it. He surprised and attacked the first victim, killed him, dragged the body to another room, and did the best he could to clean up the blood waited and repeated the same scenario for the next victim and the next. Why these three individuals arrived at the apartment separately, I could not find any information on that. But if I were to guess, I might say perhaps Roger summoned each of them one at a time, perhaps by call or text, and gave them some reason to come home to the apartment. Whatever the case, they were each ambushed, then they were dragged into either the bedroom or the bathroom and hidden under towels, blankets, and clothing to be out of the view of the next person to come through the door. Roger also mopped up the blood that would be evident to anyone walking through the door as to not raise any suspicions. And one, two, three, all dead. 
He packed up the knives he used to kill his roommates and their friend into his backpack, and he left the apartment. At approximately 7.40 p.m. on May 23rd, Roger was seen on surveillance at a Starbucks a short distance away from his apartment where he purchased a coffee. A little while later, around 8.30 p.m., he was seen sitting in his car, a black 328i BMW, in the parking lot of his apartment, doing something on his laptop. At 9.17 p.m., Roger uploaded a video to YouTube entitled Retribution, and at 9.18 p.m., he emailed his manifesto to several people. According to a resident at the Alpha Phi sorority house, she heard an unknown person pounding at the door around 9.15 p.m. That was her estimated time. The pounding lasted for several minutes, but nobody in the house went to check the front door to see who it was. About 30 seconds or so after the knocking ceased, six or seven gunshots were heard, and then they heard a scream, and that was followed by three more gunshots. You see, when nobody responded to Roger's knocking, he simply began shooting at passersby that were, unfortunately, the first people he spotted in that moment. They were three Delta 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 sorority sisters, 22-year-old Catherine Cooper, 19-year-old Veronica Weiss, and 20-year-old Bianca DeCock. Catherine and Veronica were killed. Bianca would survive her gunshot wounds. Roger got back into his vehicle and drove eastbound approximately two blocks and fired one round into a coffee shop as he passed by. That business was closed at the time. Nobody was inside and nobody was injured. Next, he drove to the Isla Vista Deli Mart and fired several rounds into the business. 20-year-old Christopher Michael Martinez was shot one time in the chest and died. Roger's vehicle was seen leaving the scene, but it was not immediately apparent that the person in the vehicle was the one who opened fire on that deli. As Roger drove heading south, he was driving on the wrong side of the road. He struck a pedestrian crossing the street, Jin Fu. He was injured, but he survived. At about the same time, Roger opened fire and struck two pedestrians, 22-year-old Aaron Zaglin and Bailey Maples, both shot in the arm and both would survive. He continued driving up the street to a point where it looped. He fired several times at Sierra Schwartz, but she was not hit. He next fired and missed at Sheriff Deputy Adrian Marquez, who fired one shot back at Roger's BMW as he drove past. He next struck two 19-year-olds, Patrick Eggert, who was on his skateboard, and Nicholas Pasichuk, who was on his bike. They both survived their injuries. He next opened fire on pedestrian Christopher Huang. He was struck in the right arm and the right buttocks. He too would survive his gunshot wounds. He next struck Victor Garcia, Mitchell Libarski, and Elliot G., all of them with his vehicle, and they all too would survive their injuries. He next shot Matthew Smith and Antoine Churchain multiple times, and they both survived as well. Roger next shot and missed Sheriff Sergeant Brad Welsh, Detective Brian Flick, and Deputies Wayne Johnson and Jordan Walker. 
All of them, except for Deputy Johnson, returned fire at Roger as he sped away. Roger next struck bicyclist Keith Chang with his vehicle, but he would survive his injuries. At this point, Rogers was being pursued by sheriff's deputies, and after he struck his last victim with his car, he crashed into some parked cars and shot himself in the head. His rampage lasted about 20 minutes as it finally came to an end at 9.35 p.m. When all of this was over, six people were dead, not including Roger, and 14 others were wounded. With him, he had three 9mm semi-automatic pistols, six empty 10-round magazines, and 548 live rounds. 83 spent shell casings were recovered from all 17 crime scenes. 55 were from Roger, and 28 were from the sheriff's deputies. So this killer, 22 years old at the time when he perpetrated these crimes, didn't just snap. This was an event a long time in the making. He had been planning it for more than a year, and I would even go so far as to say that the triggers for his rage date back to his childhood. So let's start there. And this is a very, very unique situation because this killer left behind for the world to see a manifesto. And it is long, about 140 pages or so. And it gives you a very disturbing look into Roger's mind. And you get the sense of just how dark and unhinged Elliot Rogers was just from the title of his manifesto. My Twisted World, The Story of Elliot Roger. Introduction Humanity All of my suffering on this world has been at the hands of humanity, particularly women. It has made me realize just how brutal and twisted humanity is as a species. All I ever wanted was to fit in and live a happy life amongst humanity but I was cast out and rejected, forced to endure an existence of loneliness and insignificance, all because the females of the human species were incapable of seeing value in me. This is the story of how I, Elliot Roger, came to be. This is the story of my entire life. It is a dark story of sadness, anger, and hatred. It is a story of war against cruel injustice. In this magnificent story, I will disclose every single detail about my life, every single significant experience that I've pulled from my superior memory, as well as how those experiences have shaped my views of the world. This tragedy did not have to happen. I didn't want things to turn out this way. But humanity forced my hand, and this story will explain why. My life didn't start out dark and twisted. I started out as a happy and blissful child, living my life to the fullest in the world that I thought was good and pure. Okay, dreamers, so right away, what are our takeaways from this introduction into Roger's manifesto? Well, for sure, he's misogynistic. He's filled with rage, and he thinks he's superior to everyone else. 
I already knew I really didn't like this guy, and so far he's definitely validating my feelings here. Next, my twisted world goes into what he calls a blissful beginning, age 0 to 5. I will say this. He has pretty amazing recall for these five years. And I'm going to assume his parents told him a great deal about his experience in these years. But even so, the details are pretty impressive. At least to me anyway. On the morning of July 24th, 1991, in a London hospital, I was born. I breathed in the first breath of life as I entered this world weighing only 5.4 pounds. My parents must have been filled with happiness and pride that day. They had just witnessed the birth of their first child, and they named me Elliot Oliver Robertson Roger. I was born to young parents. My father, Peter Roger, was only 26 when he impregnated my mother, Chin, who was 30. Okay, Dreamer, so this is kind of weird, right? The way he words things. Don't they stand out to you? He points out that he realizes he was small from the time that he was born. And at this point, I'm going to guess that he had a complex about his size. I think that will become evident as we go through this. I looked online and it seems that he was 5 feet 9 inches or 1.75 meters tall. So, eh, kind of average-ish. It also stands out to me that he said that his dad impregnated his mom. Like, who says it like that? It kind of sounds like you're listening to a scientist talk about wildlife mating on the Discovery Channel or something. Nobody talks about their parents like that, do they? And another thing. He said his parents were young. But they were kind of actually not that young. His dad was 26. That doesn't strike me as that young, and his mom was 30, and that definitely doesn't sound that young to me to have your first child. Nothing wrong with it, but that's just about twice as old as what I would say a young parent is. A teenager having kids. Even at the age of 20 or 21, that still feels young. I had my kid at 24, and I felt like that was kind of average to start having kids. I guess it's all relative, but anyway, back to his blissful beginnings. Peter is of British descent, hailing from the prestigious Roger family, a family that was once part of the wealthy upper class before they lost all of their fortune during the Great Depression. My father's father, George Roger, was a renowned photojournalist who had taken very famous photographs during the Second World War though he failed to reacquire the family's lost fortune. My mother is of Chinese descent. She was born in Malaysia and moved to England at a young age to work as a nurse on several film sets, where she became friends with very important individuals in the film industry, including George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. She even dated George Lucas for a short time. My mother and father had been married for a couple of years before my mother became pregnant with me, in fact, her pregnancy was an accident. Okay, let's stop here for a sec. There's a red flag. That tells us right there how Roger felt about his place in the world, right? He talked about his family being so prestigious, 
even his grandfather being a renowned photojournalist, and how his mom knew important people in the movie industry, even dating George Lucas. His father is a prominent British filmmaker, probably most well known for being a second unit director on The Hunger Games. So Roger talks about his parents being very important people, very important people who created this accident, him. So he goes on. She had been taking pills to prevent pregnancy, but when she visited my father on one of his film sets, she fell ill and the medication that she took for that illness thwarted the effect of the anti-pregnancy pills and so their lovemaking during this period resulted in my life. So awkward, right? Anti-pregnancy thwarted the effects. Lovemaking resulted in my life. I just find the wording of this whole thing really bizarre. Okay, so let me stop interrupting myself. Let's carry on. Only a couple months after my birth, I went on my first vacation. My parents took me on a boat to France. I was already a traveler. Of course, I have no memories of this trip. My mother said that I cried a lot. At the time that I was born, my mother and father were living at a house in London, but shortly after my birth, they decided to move to the countryside. We moved to a large house made of red brick in the county of Sussex, with vast grass fields surrounding it. The house even had a name, the Old Rectory. This is where I spent my early childhood the first five years of my life, and it was beautiful. The memories I have of this period are only memories of happiness and bliss. My father was a professional photographer at the time, just in the stage of becoming a director. My mother gave up her nursing career to stay home and look after me. My grandma on my mother's side, who I would call Ama, moved in with us to help out my mother. I would spend a lot of time with Ama during those years. This was a time of discovery, excitement, and fun. I had just entered this new world, and I knew nothing of the pain it would cause me later on. I enjoyed life with innocent bliss. I can remember playing in the fields and going on long walks with Ama to pick berries. She would always warn me not to touch the stinging needles that sometimes grew in our fields, but curiosity got the best of me, and I got stung a few times. There was a swing in the back of our yard, which I had many good times on. The first birthday I remember was my third birthday. My parents threw a party for me in the field. I had a helicopter birthday cake. I can remember one of my friend's parents cutting off the first piece and giving it to my friend. I threw a tantrum because I was expecting to get the first piece. It was my birthday after all. My father bought me a toy tractor that I could ride around in, and I would play with it all the time after that. Sometime after my third birthday, we all went on vacation to Malaysia, my mother's home country. I only have flashes of memory of that vacation. I enjoyed it very much. We visited a few of my mother's relatives. For preschool, I was enrolled at Dorset House, an upscale all-boys private school in the countryside near where we lived. I was forced to wear a uniform, which I hated because I had to wear uncomfortable socks up to my knees. I was very nervous and I cried on my first day there. 
I could remember two friends I made by the name of George and David. I would always play in the sandpit with them. I didn't like school at Dorset House very much. I found the rules to be too strict. My least favorite part of it was the football seasons. I never understood the game, and I could never keep up with the other boys on the field. So I stood by the goalkeeper and pretended to be the second goalkeeper. So, dreamers, are you noticing that no matter how much Roger says this was blissful and full of happiness, he appears to be super focused on all the things that he hated or made him mad? But this was the happiest time of his life. And from playing football, or as we call it in America, soccer, he's already feeling disconnected and adequate as a player, opting to stand around and pretend to be engaged in the game instead of trying to figure it out and join in. Okay, so let's continue. My favorite part was playing in the woods after lunch. There was a particular climbing structure that I had a lot of fun with. My preschool class once went on a field trip to the park where I had the misfortune of getting lost. As my class was eating lunch, I ventured off to another area of the park. And when I returned, my class had moved on. I remember panicking and asking strangers for help. It was a terrifying experience for me. I was eventually led back to my class by the strangers I talked to. Okay, so I'm gonna interrupt myself again. Again with the weird words, misfortune of getting lost. And here is where I'm beginning to get the sense that Roger always looked for some way to blame others for the things that he does wrong. He was the one that wandered off. Now granted, his teachers or whoever was the adult in charge at the time should have been keeping a closer eye on the young kids, but he admittedly split from the group and when he decided that he would come back, they were gone. He already had the sense that he was entitled to do the things the way that he wanted to do them and that he doesn't have to listen or follow rules. And he seems to want to further pass the blame onto everyone else by twice pointing out that he had to talk to strangers, which is obviously something that children are usually taught not to do because it's dangerous. And he, poor Elliot, was made to face the peril of breaking the number one rule of not talking to strangers. Okay, so let's carry on. I remember one funny incident when we were taking school pictures. They forced us to sit cross-legged, which I hated doing. I absolutely refused to sit that way for the picture. The teachers eventually conceded and the picture was taken with me being the only one sitting differently. And here again, Elliot Rogers feeling entitled that he's somehow special and doesn't have to conform or follow rules. He was that one kid he thinks it's funny, I find it to be annoying. And if I was his teacher, his parents would be hearing from me. So back to his story. The holiday season was the best part of the year for me. It must have been very cold in England, but I don't remember the cold. I just remember how much fun I had. I was filled with joy when it started snowing outside. I loved playing in the snow. My father helped me build a snowman once. We would start with little snowballs and roll them around our field until we formed the body, and then we would decorate it. During Christmas, my parents always had parties and gatherings. 
My father's best friend, Christopher Bess, who was also my godfather, came to our house frequently. We would often go to my father's parents' house in Smarden, Kent. I would call my grandmother on my father's side, Grandma Jinx. My memories of my grandfather, George Roger, are faint. He had fallen ill at this period. My father's brother, Uncle Johnny, had a son one year younger than me who was named George, after my grandfather. I always played games with my cousin George in Grandma Jinx's garden. The two of us got along well. On New Year's Eve, our neighbors once set up a bonfire in the field next to our house. I was fascinated at how big the fire was. I'd never seen anything like it, and it astounded my little mind. This was the first time I also saw fireworks. My father gave me one of those sparklers to play with, which I was enraptured by. There was one very special place my father would take me to often. It was at the top of the range of beautiful rolling hills that I termed the London Hills because I thought London was on the other side of them. We would go there to fly kites. I can remember these experiences vividly. The hills were full of tall, straw-like grass, and the weather was always windy, perfect for kite flying. It was a time of utmost happiness and joy for me. My father taught me to fly a kite by myself. The wind was so strong that I feared it would lift up my frail little body and carry me into the clouds. Once I got the hang of it, it was exhilarating. We would fly our kites together and run around with the wind. I will never forget that place. My favorite childhood film was The Land Before Time. I used to watch that movie all the time with Ama. It was about a baby dinosaur named Littlefoot who had just lost his mother and was journeying through a dangerous world to find the Great Valley, a land of prosperity and peace. I remember feeling the utter sadness during the scenes when his mother died and the triumphant and happy emotions that swept over me when he finally discovered the Great Valley after going through all of the hardships to get there. I watched this movie so many times that just thinking about it brings the emotions back. It was a big part of my childhood. Already a world traveler, I went on a trip to Spain with my parents and my parents' friends Patrick and Lupe. It was the fourth country I'd been to at such a young age. We stayed in an exquisite castle-like house that I believe was owned by a friend of ours. The house had a tower that I was extremely curious about. At one point, my parents and their friends ventured up to the top of it, but they made me stay below because I was too young. I was sorely disappointed. As they were climbing the tower, I went outside to look at the cacti surrounding the house. These cacti also sparked my curiosity, and I foolishly decided to touch a cactus. I ended up getting needles all over my hand, and it took a long time for my mother to remove them. Shortly after my trip to Spain, we went on another trip to Greece. We stayed at a hotel near the beach. It was very hot there. The weather was new to me, as I was used to the cold British climate. The trip to Greece was significant because it was during this time my father received the news of the death of my grandfather. He had died of natural causes on my fourth birthday at the age of 87. 
It was the first experience I had of the death of a close relative and the first time that I saw my father cry. My four-year-old self could not imagine my father ever crying. And so when I saw him cry that day, I knew how shaken he was. It was a very sad day for all of us. We immediately flew home. I believe it was during that time after my fourth birthday that my father came to the decision to eventually move to the United States. As he was just becoming a director, he believed Los Angeles would offer more opportunities. We took a short trip to California to gain an initial look at it. I don't remember much of this trip, but I do remember having a good time. At the age of four, I, Elliot Roger, had already been to six different countries. Who can claim that, eh? The United Kingdom, France, Spain, Greece, Malaysia, and the United States. It was also during this time that my mother became pregnant again. I was going to have a sibling. My parents decided to have another baby, this pregnancy being planned, so that I could have a sibling to grow up with. We later discovered it was going to be a baby girl. Before my fifth birthday, my mother went into labor to deliver the baby. I can remember the night vividly. I was very ill that night. A bad omen. I stayed home with Amma while my mother and father were at the hospital, and we watched movies together. I was fraught with anticipation the whole time. And when my parents came back late in the night they brought with them, they brought a little black-haired baby wrapped in a bundle. I had a baby sister, and they named her Georgia. I have no memories of what happened on my fifth birthday. Shortly after, we were making plans to permanently move to the United States. The news excited me. I was sad at the prospect of leaving my life in England behind. My father took a short trip to the United States by himself to scout out houses. I remember talking on the phone with him while he was there. He told me he found a very nice house for us to move to. I asked him if it had a swimming pool and he said it did. This news made me very happy. And then the time came. We started packing everything up at the old rectory. On my last day at Dorset House School, my teacher was giving us all candies when my mother came to pick me up early. I said goodbye to all my friends there, and that was the last time I saw them. My father was given an offer to buy the old rectory for about 400,000 pounds. We were only renting, but he declined, a decision he would regret later on, as it would have been a worthy investment. I cried as we drove away from the old rectory. All the experiences there, playing in the fields, driving my tractor, tending to my garden, going on walks with Ama, swinging on the swing. All those experiences were gone. I was about to start a new life. We boarded the plane and took off to America. Okay, so just a couple of things stood out to me. Roger talked about his sister being conceived differently than did his own. Remember he said with him, his mother was impregnated by his father when the anti-pregnancy pills failed. 
and that he was a mistake. And by contrast, his sister was planned, and his mom became pregnant. And he looked at his getting sick at the night his mom went into labor as a bad omen. And after that, Mr. Perfect Recall has zero memory of the birthday that followed the birth of his sister. And maybe he was starting to block stuff out. Next, Roger goes into part two of his life story, Growing Up in America, which encompasses ages five to nine. Because he goes so deep into details, the older he gets, the more he remembers, I'm going to try to pick out the parts that stand out to me the most. The parts that kind of give us a glimpse as to what's to come a little more than a decade later. So we pick up after his move to America, and he's working on becoming an American kid. My father did some extensive school searching after our arrival, and he found a small private school named Pinecrest. I was to attend kindergarten there. My five-year-old self at the time could not imagine how significant this place would eventually become for me. A great turning point in my life will eventually take place there. A tragic turn for the worse. But that will come later, in a darker chapter of my story, when I enter into my preteen years. For now, I was a kindergartner who was enjoying life to the fullest. Kindergarten at Pinecrest did not turn out so well. I had a very unpleasant teacher who was impatient with how far behind I was in my schoolwork as I had missed a couple months of school due to the move. During playtime, this teacher would keep me in the classroom to do extra work in order to catch up. My parents didn't like this teacher, and one of their friends recommended another school for me, a private school named Farm School. After only a couple of weeks at Pinecrest, my parents took me out of it, and I would not return again until I would go there for middle school six years later. My first day at farm school turned out to be a good start. I had two teachers, and they made an effort to introduce me to the other kids. There was one particular boy named Joey, who they assigned to show me around. He was nice to me at first, but would soon to turn out to be a rotten little prick who would always get into fights with me. He then became my greatest enemy at the school. The first real friend I made in the United States was a girl named Maddie Humphreys. Isn't that ironic? The first friend I made was a girl. She was the first female friend I ever had, and she would be the last. I was a five-year-old boy playing with a girl my own age, like any normal boy would do. I was enjoying life in a world I loved. I was happy and completely oblivious to the fact that my future in this world would only turn to darkness and misery because of girls. This girl who was my friend, Maddie, would eventually come to represent everything I hate and despise, everything that is against me, and everything that I'm against. I was playing innocently with this girl, in the manner all children play. We even took baths together. It was the only time in my life that I would see a girl my age naked. When I think about the experiences I had during my friendship with her, it makes me think ominously of the fact that all children, boys and girls, start out the same. We all start out innocent, and we all start out together. 
Only through the experiences and circumstances of growing up do we drift apart, form allegiances, and face each other as enemies. That is when wars happen. That is when the true nature of humanity rises to the surface. At this stage in my life, of course, my war hadn't started yet. It wouldn't start for a long time. I was enjoying my life without a care in the world, not knowing that all my joy is destined to turn to dust. So now, dreamers, Roger heads into age six. My favorite part of the day during this jubilant period of my life was our afternoon trips to the park, specifically Serrania Park. I would go on the swing, though my father had to push me. I remember being jealous of other boys who were able to swing by themselves, boys who were even younger than myself. It was the second time I realized my lack of physical capability. The first time I had such an inkling of my shortcomings were those disastrous football sessions at Dorset House. I was very small and short-statured for my age. I never gave this much concern during my early childhood, but this fact fully dawned on me the day my family took a trip to Universal Studios. At the time, I loved dinosaurs. I was fascinated by them. I had just watched the movie Jurassic Park, and when I found out that there was a Jurassic Park-themed ride at Universal Studios, I couldn't wait to go on it. We queued up in the line and waited for an hour. When we reached the front, the park staff presented me with a measuring stick, and I didn't fit the requirements. I saw other boys my age admitted onto the ride, but I was denied because I was too short. The ride that I was so excited to enjoy at the theme park was forbidden to me. I immediately fell into a crying tantrum, and my mother had to comfort me. Being denied entry on a simple amusement park ride due to my height seemed like a small injustice, but it was big for me at the time. Little did I know, this injustice was very small indeed compared to all the things I'd be denied in the future because of my height. Maddie became a very close friend of mine. She was the only friend from farm school who I continued to see after I graduated. They had a huge backyard area, and the two of us would go on adventures. She also grew up watching The Land Before Time, and we would watch the sequels together whenever they released a new one. Sometimes, when I went to her house, she would have other female friends there, and I played with them too. I had no trouble interacting with girls at that age, surprisingly. My six-year-old self was playing with girls, unbeknownst to the horror and the misery the female gender would inflict upon me later in life. In the present day, these girls treat me like the scum of the earth, but at that time, we were all equals. Such bitter irony. It was now time for me to start first grade. My parents enrolled me at Sariana Avenue Elementary School, which was just down the street from the park. 
I wouldn't remain at this school for very long, however, because only weeks into my first grade year, my parents decided that they were going to move to Topanga. Most of the kids at the Saryania Avenue School would end up going to Taft High School nearby, a place that would cause me great suffering in the future. Perhaps some of the kids in my class at Saryania would end up turning into those who would bully me at Taft. I don't remember any of the kids from my class there, so I will never know the answer to that. I was a bit frustrated when my parents told me that they were going to transfer me to another school only after a couple of weeks of settling into Saryania. That frustration would soon cease because the years that I would spend at Topanga Elementary School would be some of the best years of my life. The last years of being a carefree child. We had some happy times during the beginnings of my life there. My father's new directing career was taking off quite well too, and he would go away a lot to direct commercials for prestigious companies, leaving my mother and the nanny to look after me. The only downside of this was my father's absence from my life. Despite this, I always looked up to him as a powerful and successful man. Adjusting to a new environment in Topanga was quite easy for me, especially since the school was so much fun. I was now a Topanga kid. During recess at school, I started noticing this boy with slightly long blonde hair who was kicking dust. We teamed up and we started playing the game together. And this was the start of a long and interesting friendship. This boy's name was James Ellis and he would become my best friend for the next 14 years of my life. Christmas arrived quickly and for my present, I got my first video gaming console, a Nintendo 64. I had little knowledge of video games before this. I barely knew what they were. My father is the one who introduced them to me. With the Nintendo 64, my father bought the game Star Wars, Shadows of the Empire, and Turok, Dinosaur Hunter. I was fascinated with this new form of entertainment, and my father and I would bond a lot over our video game sessions. Of course, while playing those video games, my innocent, happy self knew nothing of the significant role video games would play during a large portion of my life and the sanctuary that such games would eventually provide for me from the cruelties of this world. But for now, they were just a form of entertainment, like any other hobby. Life was good at the house, but soon enough, I had to witness my mother and father get into a lot of arguments. I was too young to understand at the time what they were arguing about, but I knew that they were not getting along. At some point, I learned about the possibility that parents can separate, divorce, no longer live together. The prospect baffled my little mind. I once sat down with my mother on the outside deck and asked her if she and my father would ever divorce. She told me it would never happen and that I had nothing to worry about, and I was relieved by that. Little did I know that such a thing would happen in only a few months' time. So dreamers, now 
Roger gets into age seven. My last memory of my parents being together was my seventh birthday, and I would always cherish it. We didn't have a party for my seventh birthday, but more of a small get-together for lunch. It was a very happy day for all of us. I was turning seven. That was a big number for my little mind. I had spent seven years in this fascinating world, and my life was at a good start. I had loving parents. I had friends to play with. I was having fun at school. I had all the toys a little boy could ever want. A stranger would look at this seven-year-old boy and think that he had a great life in front of him, that there's nothing to worry about. Indeed, there shouldn't be anything to worry about. But I was just a child. I still had a few more years to enjoy life in carefree bliss before I would eventually discover how twisted and cruel this quote-unquote fascinating world really is. My parents seemed happy that day. I remember them laughing and having a good time. It would be the last time I remember them being happy together. Perhaps they really weren't. Perhaps they were just putting up a front so that I can enjoy my birthday. I couldn't even fathom the possibility of my parents separating. Very shortly after my seventh birthday, the news came. I believe it was my mother who told me that she and my father were getting a divorce. My mother, who only a few months before told me that no such thing would ever happen, I was absolutely shocked, outraged, and above all, overwhelmed. This was a huge life-changing event. My father was to stay at the house, and my mother would move into a smaller house in Topanga. It was arranged that me and my sister would mostly be living with our mother, and that we would go to father's house on the weekends. My father was required to pay child support to my mother so she could look after us. My life would change forever after this. The family I grew up with has split in half. And from then on, I would grow up in two different households. I remember crying. All the happy times I spent with my mother and father as a family were gone. Only to remain in memory. It was a very sad day. After only a couple of months since my seventh birthday, a new and very important person would come into my life. After father picked us up from school one day and took us to his house, I saw a woman with dark hair and fair skin standing in the kitchen. She introduced herself as Sumaya and she would become my stepmother. Father told me that she would be living with us from now on. At first, I thought she was just another friend who was temporarily staying with my father. My father having a girlfriend so shortly after divorcing my mother didn't even occur to me. I couldn't understand it. Soon enough, though, I realized that Sumaya was, in fact, his girlfriend 
and that they were together, just like how my father and mother were together. It was the first time I learned of the concept of a girlfriend, and it was hard to grasp. Before that, I always thought a man and a woman had to be married before living together in such a manner, and that it would take a long time for such a union to happen. Father finding a new girlfriend in such a short amount of time baffled me. I was completely taken aback. Because of my father's acquisition of a new girlfriend, my little mind got the impression that my father was a man that women found attractive, as he was able to find a new girlfriend in such a short period of time from divorcing my mother. I subconsciously held him in higher regard because of this. It is very interesting how this phenomenon works. That males who can easily find female mates garnered more respect from their fellow men, even children. How ironic is it that my father, one of those men who could easily find a girlfriend, has a son who would struggle all of his life to find a girlfriend. I soon became accustomed to Sumaya being a part of my father's household. But soon, she would start to discipline me in a harsh way that I wasn't used to. I felt that because she wasn't my real parent, that she had no right to discipline me in such a way. So I rebelled. That's where the first conflicts arose. And there would be many more in the years to come. And dreamers, here we get to age eight. I didn't interact with girls that much, but this was normal. I was at that period in my life where the boys played with the boys and the girls played with the girls, completely separate from one another. Girls were the last thing on my mind. Maddie was still the only friend that I had who was a girl, and I only saw her on the occasions when our families would get together. It was as if the girls in elementary school were part of a separate reality. Despite not having much interaction with them, they treated me cordially, as they treated all other boys of my age. This was fair, and I was content with this. I hadn't gone through puberty yet, and so I had no desire for female validation. My eight-year-old self had no inkling of the pain and misery that girls would cause me once puberty would inevitably arrive and my sexual desires for girls would develop. Sexual desires that would be mercilessly spurned. Some of the boys in my class would grow up to be embraced by girls, while I would grow up to be rejected by them. But at that moment in time, we were just innocent children growing up together. All innocence is destined to be shattered and replaced with bitter brutality. I was living in ignorant, innocent bliss. Early in my third grade year, my mother would often take us to a festival near Topanga Canyon Boulevard, where small concerts were held and people barbecued great food. A friend of hers had something to do with these events, and I played with the son of this friend. His name was Riley Annapol, and he was two years younger than me, a first grader. I played with some other younger kids there as well, peers of Riley, and I had a good time. Riley would become a common friend for a while. 
The significance of this is that Riley Annapol would eventually become someone I would harbor a great hatred for. Riley would grow up to get lots of girls, and I would grow up to be rejected by girls. But back then, he was a friend, a peer, and we were playing together as equals. It's funny how the world works. And now Roger goes into age nine. My ninth year was very interesting, and I went through a lot of changes emotionally and intellectually. It was the year in which I matured to a point where I could start observing the world more conscientiously. Before I turned nine, I was living a life as a carefree child in a world that I thought was only good and pure. From this point onwards, I would gradually discover more about the world and society. I would face problems and frustrations that I wouldn't have even thought of before. My life would still be positive and bright, and I would live it to the fullest. The first frustration of the year, which would remain for the rest of my life, was the fact that I was very short for my age. As I started fourth grade, it fully dawned on me that I was the shortest kid in my class. Even the girls were taller than me. In the past, I rarely gave a thought to it, but at this stage, I became extremely annoyed how everyone was taller than me and how the tallest boys were automatically respected more. It instilled the first feelings of inferiority in me, and such feelings would only grow more volatile with time. I desperately wanted to get taller, and I read that playing basketball increases height. This sparked my brief interest in basketball, and I would play it all the time during recess and then lunch in the upper. Most of the basketball courts were unused, so I would play it by myself or with anyone who cared to join me. During my time at my father's, I would spend hours playing basketball at his basketball court, shooting hoop after hoop after hoop, long into the evening. And I also remember lying on the ground in the basketball court, trying to stretch my body as much as I could in between basketball sessions. When I played basketball at school, some boys would join me. And when they did, I saw that they were much better at the sport than I was. I envied their ability to throw the ball at double the distance that I could. This made me realize that along with being short, I was physically weak compared to boys my age. Even boys younger than me were stronger. This vexed me to no end. By nature, I am a very jealous person. And at the age of nine, my jealous nature sprung to the surface. During playdates with James, sometimes he would have other friends over as well, and I would feel very jealous and upset when he paid more attention to them. Feeling left out, I would find a quiet corner and start crying. On the rare occurrence that my mother would have Maddie over for dinner, or we would go visit them at their house, Maddie often played with my little sister Georgia instead of me, and this too made me jealous. I remember all the times I cried when this happened. Jealousy and envy. 
Those are two feelings that would dominate my entire life and bring me immense pain. The feelings of jealousy I felt at nine years old were frustrating, but they were nothing compared to how I would feel once I hit puberty and have to watch girls choose other boys over me. Any problem I had at nine years old was nirvana compared to what I was doomed to face. I started having intense conflicts with Sumoya. I hated the rules that she imposed on me, which I believe she had no right to impose, as she was not my true parent. I hated how she would force me to drink milk every morning and very foul-tasting soup for dinner. I made such a fuss about having the soup that she used it as a punishment. Whenever I did something wrong, she would force me to drink the soup. I once had a play date with Philip at Father's house, and when I yelled at my sister because she was annoying us, Sumoya punished me by sending me to my room for an hour, embarrassing me in front of Philip. After this incident, I never had a play date at my father's house ever again. This conflict with Sumaya started a trend in which I would love being at my mother's house and dreaded the weeks I had to spend at my father's house. On top of the conflicts with Sumaya, father was rarely there. He was always out of town for his work. After spending a nice week at mother's house, I would cry when Sunday came, and I had to go to Father's on Monday. As my fourth grade year approached its end, my little nine-year-old self had another revelation about how the world works. I realized that there are hierarchies, that some people were better than others. Of course, I was subconsciously aware of this in the past, but it was at this time in my life at nine years old, that I started to give it a lot of thought and importance. I started to see this at school. At school, there were always the cool kids who seemed to be more admirable than everyone else. The way they looked, dressed, acted, made them cooler. They were cool. They were popular. And they always seemed like they were having a good time. The peaceful and innocent environment of childhood where everyone had equal footing was over. The time of fair play was at its end. Life is a competition and a struggle, and I was slowly starting to realize it. When I became aware of this common social structure at my school, I also started to examine myself and compare myself to these cool kids. And I realized with some horror that I wasn't cool at all. I had a dorky hairstyle. I wore plain and uncool clothing and I was shy and unpopular. I was always described as the shy boy in the past, but I never really thought my shyness would affect me in such a negative way until this point. This revelation about the world about myself really decreased my self-esteem. On top of this was the feeling that I was different because I am of mixed race. I am half white and half Asian, 
and this made me different from the normally fully white kids that I was trying to fit in with. I envied the cool kids, and I wanted to be one of them. I was a bit frustrated at my parents for not shaping me into one of these kids in the past. They never made an effort to dress me in stylish clothing or get me a good-looking haircut. I had to make every effort to rectify this. I had to adapt. My first act was to ask my parents to allow me to bleach my hair blonde. I always envied and admired blonde-haired people. They always seemed so much more beautiful. My parents agreed to let me do it, and my father took me to a hair salon on Mulholland Drive in Woodland Hills, California. Choosing that hair salon was a bad decision, for they only bleached the top of my head blonde. When I indignantly questioned why they didn't make all of my hair blonde, they said that I was too young for full bleaching. I was furious. I thought I looked silly with blonde hair at the top of my head and black hair on the sides and back. I was dreading going back to school the next day with this weird new hair. When I arrived at the school the next day, I was intensely nervous. Before class started, I stood in a corner frantically trying to figure out how I would go about revealing this to everyone. Trevor was the first one to notice it, and he came up to me and patted me on my head, saying that it was very cool. Well, that was exactly what I wanted. My new hair turned out to be quite the spectacle. And for a few days, I got the hint of attention and admiration I so craved. I then started to notice that all of the cool kids were interested in skateboarding. I had never ridden on a skateboard before, but if I wanted to be cool, I had to become a skateboarder. I expressed this to my parents, and my father was glad that I was showing an interest in an active sport. He took me to the store, Val Surf, on Ventura Boulevard to buy me a new skateboard, and I was fascinated by all the different choices. I settled for a red Val Surf branded skateboard, and they took it down from the wall and built it for me. I was thrilled to have this new skateboard, and the possible chance it gave me to be a cool kid. It was time to start practicing. I found it very hard to even ride it in the very beginning, and I spent many hours outside trying to get the hang of it. And that was that. I was now a skateboarder, though not yet good enough to reveal myself to the kids at school. And this is what started an obsession to copy everything that the supposed cool kids were doing. Okay, dreamers, so now next Roger gets into what he calls the last period of contentment from age 9 to 13. And again, I'm going to pick and choose what I go over and the things that stand out to me in his writings. Fourth grade ended, and once the summer started, I took a vow to myself to be the coolest kid I could possibly be by the time fifth grade began. I anticipated the approval the other cool kids would have of me once I revealed myself being similar to them, and I looked forward to it. I needed a skateboard for my mother's house too, so my mother took me to Valsurf and bought me a gray Valsurf skateboard. I would use this skateboard much more than the red skateboard that I had at my father's house, since I had all of my playdates during Mother's Week, and Mother would make more of an effort to indulge my new interest 
eventually taking me to skate parks every weekend. I became very excited about my new hobby, and I shared it with James and Philip, my two main friends. I wanted to get them interested in skateboarding as well. It was tricky to get James into it, but soon he got his own skateboard, and we would start skateboarding together around his neighborhood. As I now considered myself a skateboarder, I wanted to dress in the clothes that all the cool skateboarders were wearing. My mother took me to Val Surf once again, and this time to shop for new shirts. I picked out a few that had the logos of the skateboard companies on them, and later that day, I put on one of my new shirts, and I was thrilled to start going around in it. I felt cool. My 10th birthday arrived. I had been on this world for a decade, and what a decade it was. Full of discovery, fun, and adventures. I can't say the same for the following decade. I did not have a party for my 10th birthday, and I believed I celebrated it during my mother's week. We went out with James and his family to a restaurant in the Palisades. I was getting ready for fifth grade. I was eager to re-bleach my hair to fully blonde after the disastrous failure of my previous attempt. This time, Sumaya took me to the right salon and they gave me a short haircut and bleached all of my hair blonde. When I looked at myself in the mirror, I felt an intense level of satisfaction. A couple of weeks later, my hair started to grow and my black hair would show the roots. But the blend turned out to suit me well, and this would become my hairstyle for the next year. Before fifth grade started, I went with my father and Sumaya to a dinner party at their friend's house. I forgot who these friends were, but it was a nice house in Beverly Hills. There were lots of guests, and I did what I usually did at such dinner parties. I sat around eating snacks and talked with my sister, sometimes going to my father and asking for a sip of wine. During this party, I found myself having a conversation with father, Samaya, and one of the party guests, a boisterous middle-aged man who I can't recall the name of. Father and Samaya were talking about how I just turned 10 years old, and we discussed life and what the future had in store for me. This man we were talking to, he patted me on the back and told me that I had a great life ahead of me. With this grin on his face, he told me, in the next 10 years, you will have a great time, a great time. I had no idea what he meant by that. I wasn't even thinking about my future at that point. I was living in the moment. Now I know what he meant. Childhood is fun, but when a boy reaches puberty, a whole new world opens up to him. A whole new world with new pleasures, such as sex and love. Other boys will experience this, but not me, it pains me to say. That is the basis of my tragic life. I will not have a great time in the next 10 years. The pleasures of sex and love will be denied to me. Other boys will experience it, but not me. Instead, I will only experience misery, rejection, loneliness, 
and pain. At that moment in time, I didn't think much about this man's comment. I don't even remember who he was. But after those 10 years have passed and I've experienced what I've experienced, I can't help but think about that moment. If I only knew what was in store for me right then and there. It was time for me to begin the fifth grade. I considered myself to be very cool by now. I had gotten better at skateboarding. I had the blonde hair. I dressed like a skateboarder. I felt great anticipation for what the cool kids would think of me once they saw my transformation. To my disappointment, no one really cared. They were all in their own worlds. I don't remember any kid showing recognition of my new coolness. Eventually, I was regarded differently than I was in the fourth grade, which I became content with. The cool kids talked to me more, and I started hanging out with them during recess and lunch. When Father's Week came, I felt frustrated because I didn't have cool enough clothes there, and it took a while for me to get my father to find the time to buy some for me. Mother always got me what I wanted, right when I wanted it. At Mother's house, all of my needs were met with excellent precision. Whereas at Father's house, there was always a time delay because Father and Sumaya had less time for me and paid less attention to me. As I got better and better at skateboarding, my mother made an effort to take me to the skate park every week. By now, skateboarding just wasn't a sport I was doing to copy the cool kids. I was truly interested in the sport. I even had hopes and dreams of becoming a professional skateboarder. That became my life goal. I loved skateboarding so much. I usually went alone, but after a few weeks of going, I made a few acquaintances there and people knew me. This became a Friday tradition during Mother's Week. For Christmas, my mother bought me the new PlayStation 2. I had been wanting it for a long time. And when I unwrapped the present and saw the box, I felt so elated. The PlayStation was much more advanced in graphics, and it amazed me. When my mother announced that I would have to share it with my sister Georgia and that I can't keep it in my room, my excitement turned to indignation and I threw quite a tantrum. After crying for a bit, I calmed down and settled to sharing it with Georgia. She wouldn't be using it much anyways, I told myself. When I returned to school after winter break, I noticed that all the cool kids had another interest, hacky sacking. It was a simple sport consisting of kicking a bean-sized bag into the air as many times as you can without it landing on the floor. They all had hacky sacks and they would spend recess and lunch kicking them with each other since skateboarding wasn't allowed on school grounds. I didn't have a hacky sack and I decided that I needed to do something about that. Mother took me to the PacSun store where I got a hacky sack with an orange and green design. And when I got home from the mall, I started practicing. I remember struggling with it at first, but I spent the next few afternoons concentrating on getting good at it. I spent many hours and well into the night practicing in my backyard. Once I was able to kick the hacky sack properly, I made a big deal of the fact that I was now interested in it. Despite all of my attempts to be cool, 
I didn't feel as if the other kids respected me as much. I was still quite the outcast, as I always will be. Aside from my struggles to be regarded as cool and my obsession with attaining such recognition, fifth grade was my favorite school year in elementary school. I played with more people than I ever did in previous grades. I was less shy. I wasn't a dork. And I had an awesome time learning how to skateboard and hacky sack. It was a memorable year filled with joyful experiences. I didn't want the school year to end. Once fifth grade was over, I would have to go to middle school, and the prospect filled me with anxiety. My little innocent mind always looked at middle school as something far in the future when I grow up, and I didn't want to grow up. I was enjoying my life as a kid right at that moment. I didn't think about the future. Kids in my class told many rumors of middle school life that filled me with fear and sent a shiver down my spine. Even through watching movies and TV shows, I got a glimpse of what was in store for a middle schooler. There was talk of girls, how it would be cool to be popular with the girls. Girls were like completely foreign creatures to me. I never interacted with them. I wasn't expected to. In elementary school, boys played with boys and girls played with girls. And that was what I was used to. That was my world. I heard stories of how boys are expected to start kissing girls in middle school. Such things overwhelmed me. I tried to dismiss it as much as I could and enjoy my life in the present moment. And finally, it was time to graduate from elementary school. For the first few weeks of summer, mother arranged playdates with various friends and acquaintances I made from Topanga Elementary, including Trevor Bourget, Matt Bordier, Charlie Converse, John Glenn, and Philip Lazar. It was interesting to have Trevor and Matt over. I never thought I would have playdates with them. Matt was one of the coolest kids in the school. He was a skateboarder and a baseball player who seemed to garner respect from everyone. I envied him during elementary school, even though we were friends, and I would deeply envy and hate him later on in life when I find out how much success he would have with girls. Again, I repeat that as children, we all play together as equals in a fair environment. Only after the advent of puberty does the true brutality of human nature show its face. Life will become a bitter and unfair struggle for self-worth, all because girls would choose some boys over others. The boys who girls find attractive will live pleasure-filled lives, Matt Baudier will go on to live a life of pleasure. Girls will throw themselves at him. And I will go on to be rejected and humiliated by girls. At that moment in time, we were just playing together as children, oblivious to the fact that my future would be dark and his would be bright. Life is such a cruel joke. When I was 11 years old, we took a trip to France and England shortly after my birthday. We traveled on Virgin Atlantic upper class. I was extremely enthusiastic about this, as I always loved luxury and opulence. We toured many cultural towns and stayed in castle-style hotels. There should have been a great experience for me, but my conflicts with Samoya soured it. 
There would be a few incidents in which she punished me by making me stay in my hotel room while she, father, and Georgia all went out to dinner at a restaurant. I hated her for this. On the way back, we stopped at Grandma Jinx's house in England for a week. The cousins were there this time, and it was a lot of fun. We all slept in one room, so it was like having one big sleepover. One day, we went on a trip to a museum where I had an argument with Samoya. She shouted at me in front of George and threatened to punish me. This was so embarrassing that I fell into a miserable mood for the rest of the day. I always loved traveling, but I learned that traveling with Samoya ruins the whole experience. And this wouldn't be the last time I would be forced to travel with her either, to my utmost dismay. The time for middle school had come. My fear of this day haunted the back of my mind all summer. I was enrolled at Pinecrest Middle School for sixth grade. I had mixed feelings about going to this school because I didn't like my experience there during kindergarten. Father said it's the best option for me because it was a small private school. I didn't want to go to a large school like Hale Middle School. It would have been too overwhelming for me. On the first day, I was shaking with anxiety and fear. I didn't know what to expect. Transitioning to middle school was a big deal for me, even more so than starting elementary school. I was much older, and I cared more about what people thought of me. I was no longer an innocent little child who didn't have to worry. I had to worry about a lot of things, and oh, did I worry. It was a whole new school full of people I didn't know. They all previously went to elementary school together, so most of them knew each other. That made me even more nervous. I felt an intense fear of what middle school would be like. I didn't know how to act around girls. I didn't know what was cool anymore. I had no friends there. I simply didn't know what to do. I felt like I was walking into a snowstorm without a coat. My parents led me to the school to say goodbye, and it was time for me to start my first class. I had to take multiple classes with different teachers now. This was also a new concept for me, and it made me extremely uncomfortable. Since this was private school, I had to wear a uniform, something I hadn't done since Dorset House in England. I thought of this as a good thing, though. I didn't have to worry about what I would wear on the first day. So for the first few days, I withdrew in a defensive shell, and I didn't really talk to anyone. I felt so intimidated by them. I hated them for it. I hated them so much, but I had to increase my standing with them. I wanted to be friends with them. I also observed the girls. I was still very short for my age, and most of the girls were taller than me. I hadn't reached puberty yet but I was starting to admire female prettiness. There was one group of pretty popular girls, and they all seemed to like hanging out with that boy Robert Morgan. I didn't yet desire girls sexually, but I felt envy towards Robert for being able to attract the attention of all the popular girls. What was so special about Robert Morgan? I constantly asked myself. I thought all of the cool kids were obnoxious jerks, but I tried as best I could to hide my disgust and appear cool to them. They were obnoxious jerks, 
and yet somehow it was these boys who all of the girls flocked to. This showed me that the world was a brutal place, and human beings were nothing more than savage animals. Everything my father taught me was proven wrong. He raised me to be a polite, kind gentleman. In a decent world, that would be ideal. But the polite, kind gentleman doesn't win in the real world. The girls don't flock to gentlemen. They flock to the alpha male. They flock to the boys who appear to have the most power and status. And it was a ruthless struggle to reach such a height. It was too much for me to handle. I was still a little boy with a fragile mind. Thinking about such things would only crush my innocence. And eventually it will, but not at this point. I subconsciously wanted to enjoy my childhood as much as I could. So I tried not to think about this new revelation and enjoyed life in the moment. I put it all aside to be pondered over later. My whole world had changed. The cool thing to do now was to be popular with the girls. I did not know how to go about doing that. Skateboarding, I was able to do. Dressing well, that was simple. But attracting attention from girls? How in the blazes was I going to do that? I didn't even understand what was so special about it either. But everyone seemed to place such importance on it. This made me even more shy, and I became known as the shy new kid. I started to become known to the girls of my school, and surprisingly, they treated me quite well. It was a huge relief. Middle school would be the last time in my life where I wouldn't be completely invisible to girls. All of the pretty girls had a peculiar habit of hugging the boys that they knew as a form of greeting, and some of them hugged me. I didn't understand why, but it felt like the best feeling ever. I was 100 times more satisfied from getting a hug from a pretty girl than getting a high five from a popular boy. It was a new experience that enraptured every fiber of my being. The seventh and eighth grade girls were especially kind to me. I guess they thought I was cute in a boyish sort of way. This made my initial experience of middle school much better. I decided to attend the school dance in early October. A school dance was completely foreign to me. Elementary schools didn't have them, of course, and I only knew about them from watching typical American shows on television. I thought it was something I had to do in order to be cool. I was very nervous, naturally, but I pushed myself to go ahead with it. I was shocked that some 7th and 8th grade girls offered to dance with me. They came up to me in a group and taught me how to slow dance. I had to place my hand on their hips while they placed their hand on my shoulders. And we would move slowly with the music. They were all taller than me and I was terrified but it felt so good. That would be the only time in my life where I would have a satisfying experience with girls. The only time. It was at 11 years old when I first started using the internet on a regular basis. The internet was still considered a new phenomenon at the time. Before 11, I roughly knew how to browse websites and use email, but once I fully immersed myself in it, it really fascinated me. 
The popular social networking tool at that period was AOL Instant Messenger, or AIM. I joined a few chat rooms. The prospect of talking to strangers from a computer was new and astounding to me. Joining chat rooms through AOL temporarily filled in the social void for a few weeks. This would definitely not be the first time I would try to fill that void with the internet. Once I established myself in the chat rooms, I made a few friends who instant messaged frequently. One friend I met through a chat room suddenly emailed me pictures of beautiful naked girls telling me to check this out. When I looked at the pictures, I was shocked beyond words. I had never seen what beautiful girls looked like naked. And the sight filled me with strong, overwhelming emotions. I didn't know what was happening to me. Was it the first inkling of a sexual desire in my body? I was traumatized. My childhood was fading away. Ominous fear swept over me, and I stopped talking to that person. As the sixth grade year came to a close, I felt dissatisfied and insignificant. Indeed, a whole new world had opened up before me, and I had no idea how to prevail in it. I still wanted to live as a child. I never established proper friends at Pinecrest, and the only playdate I had was the one with Connor that my mother arranged and it turned out to be a disaster for me. My mother and father both showed concern that I wasn't making any friends, but I still saw some friends from Topanga. They didn't make a big deal out of it. I considered sixth grade to be the better year out of the three years I would spend in middle school. Girls actually paid attention to me. They knew who I was, and I didn't feel like I was completely invisible. I was extremely shy with girls and could barely have a conversation with them. But I still interacted with girls more this year than I would for any following year. The cool kids treated me nicely, despite my reputation as the quiet kid. I always felt like a loser compared to them, and I hated them for it. Though I still wanted their approval, I wanted to be one of them. I wanted to be their friend. Indeed, sixth grade was the peak of my life at Pinecrest. It would only go downhill from there. My mother bought me a brand new video game console, the Xbox. I heard a lot of kids talking about how great the Xbox was at school, and I was really eager to have one. I liked the Xbox much more than the PlayStation 2. The graphics were better, and the games were more to my taste. With the Xbox, I got the game Halo. At first, I found Halo to be very difficult, and I gave up on it a few times. I had no idea that Halo would soon become one of my favorite video game series that I ever played. I was extremely happy and relieved when summer came. Middle school was much more stressful than elementary school, both socially and academically. Summer would provide a well-needed break from it. I was enjoying a lovely summer, but suddenly my mother said that I had to go to summer camp at Pinecrest. This was a decision she made with my father because they thought it would be healthy for me. I did not like this one bit. It was a last-minute decision. One moment I was relaxing and enjoying my summer break, and the next, my mother's waking me up to take me to my first day of camp at Pinecrest. Gratefully, summer camp would only last for four weeks. 
Summer camp at Pinecrest was located at the elementary school section. I recognized my old kindergarten class. At this camp, an incident happened that would scar me for life. This was the first time that I was treated badly by a girl, and it occurred at this camp. I was innocently playing with the friends that I had made, and they were tickling me, something people always would do because I was very ticklish. I accidentally bumped into a pretty girl at the same age as me, and she got very angry. She cursed at me and pushed me, embarrassing me in front of my friends. I did not know who this girl was. She was only at Pinecrest for summer camp, but she was very pretty, and she was taller than me. I immediately froze up and went into a state of shock. One of my friends asked me if I was okay, and I didn't answer. I remained very quiet for the rest of the day. I couldn't believe what had happened. Cruel treatment from women is ten times worse than from men. It made me feel like an insignificant, unworthy little mouse. I felt so small and vulnerable. I couldn't believe that this girl was so horrible to me and I thought that it was because she viewed me as a loser. That was the first experience of female cruelty I endured, and it traumatized me to no end. It made me even more nervous around girls, and I would be extremely weary and cautious of them from that point on. I felt relieved when summer camp ended. That experience with the mean girl ruined it for me. Hell, it ruined a part of my life. Whenever I think about that summer camp, I would think about that girl, and my emotions would flare up. My 12th birthday followed. I decided not to do anything for it. I tried to forget about what happened at summer camp as much as I could. Seventh grade began. My coveted summer was over. My reputation as a shy kid continued, and I still didn't make any friends who became close enough to see outside of school. I did socialize with various groups during school hours, so I wasn't a complete outcast during seventh grade. It was this year that my mother took me to watch The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, in movie theaters. Watching that movie in theaters was such an epic experience, and I will always remember it. Though it wasn't as exciting as going to the red carpet premieres with my dad, it came quite close. After the movie, my mother and I ate dinner at TGI Fridays. That day marked the last time I would ever go to the movie theaters with my mother, except for movie premieres. Growing up, I always loved it when my parents took me to the movies. The large screen, the loud surround sound immersed me into the movie. And I liked that dizzying feeling I would feel when I walked out of the movie theater and entered back into the real world. It was such a remarkable experience. Soon enough, the movie theaters would turn from a place of joy to a place of dread. Once puberty arrives, I would start getting jealous of all the young couples or groups of boys and girls who would go to the movies together. That day that I saw the final Lord of the Rings movie was the last time I enjoyed the movie theaters in peace, without fear of humiliation. 
Aside from Fridays, I always met up with a group of friends at Planet Cyber on Wednesdays because they were charging only $1 per hour on Wednesdays. Usually my mother wouldn't let me play video games for such a long time on a weekday, but she made an exception for Wednesdays. One such Wednesday, I was introduced to the game Warcraft 3. It was like no other game I'd ever played before. It enabled the player to build an army and battle against other players online. I was captivated. The game was so much fun. I couldn't help but think about it every second for the next two days. When the following Friday arrived, we played it for most of the day and well into the night. My initial happy interest in the game, Warcraft 3, had an ominous tone to it. This was the beginning of a long relationship with the Warcraft franchise. In less than a year from that point, they would release their ultimate game, the World of Warcraft. And that game, I would find sanctuary in it for most of my teen years. Seventh grade flew by very fast. My life was a continuation of sixth grade. I mingled with acquaintances here and there and behaved nicely with everyone. The difference is, is I was having so much fun outside of school with my friends at Planet Cyber that I didn't really care about getting popular at school or getting attention from girls. I was enjoying my very last year of childhood. My 12th year was one of the best years of my life, and the last year that I was happy. I'm glad that I can say at least I made the best of it. I gave no thought at all to my future or the fact that puberty was just around the corner. I barely even knew much about what puberty was. My whole world would change, and my entire life would collapse into utter despair. I wonder how I would have handled things if I knew, if I was prepared. The summer was long awaited. I was having the time of my life and once school was out, I couldn't wait to spend the summer relaxing and doing fun things. I was relieved that neither of my parents made me attend summer camp. I suppose I'd gotten too old for it. The summer was mine to enjoy, however I wanted. It was like a coveted treasure that I could only hold for a few moments. But those moments would last forever in memory. It was my last summer before puberty my last summer of innocence, my last summer of true happiness and satisfaction with life. Samoya told us extraordinary news. On one sunny afternoon at my father's, me and my sister were asked to come to the dining room for a special announcement. It wasn't announced by words, but by Samoya indicating to us to feel her stomach. She was pregnant. She and my father were having their first baby together. I was going to have a baby brother. I felt elated. I remember when I was a bit younger, I always asked my father and Sumaya if they were going to have a baby, and they said that they would like to. I still felt surprised when it was actually confirmed. It was that warm feeling that would envelop me when a good change in life happened. I had no idea what it would be like, but I welcomed it. In the middle of summer, my mother took me and my sister on a vacation to Malaysia. This was the first time we would go on overseas vacation with just my mother, and I was pleased at the thought of it. We took off on my 13th birthday, 
I spent my birthday on the airplane. A much more exciting birthday than the previous few. We traveled on Singapore Airlines, and though we weren't traveling on first class, I found it to be just as comfortable. The three weeks flew by very fast, and I cried a little bit when it was over. It was a good sadness. I celebrated my 13th birthday again at my father's house on the night we returned to America. I was allowed to have my very first glass of beer for this celebration. I always thought of alcoholic drinks, such as beer and wine, as mysterious drinks that were forbidden to children like myself. My father would let me have only a small sip of wine from time to time. Having my first glass of beer felt like a big honor. For my present, I got my first cell phone. During this era, cell phones were like the rite of passage for kids my age. I always envied kids who had a cell phone. To finally have one of my own made me feel so proud. My phone was a silver T-Mobile phone with blue lighting. I loved the satisfaction I felt when I opened it up and saw the pretty lights. So dreamers, we're going to stop this here for the moment. I don't even want to admit this, but once I began reading Roger's manifesto, I couldn't stop. The details of his early life that he's been able to recall amazes me. Like every moment in his life is seared into his memory and he hung on to every single little thing that he loved and hated. And you can probably already tell he was a person who early on knew that he never wanted to grow up and leave childhood. And in a lot of ways, he never did. In part two, which will be released shortly after this, in a couple days maybe, as soon as I'm finished recording it, We're going to heavily focus on the segments of his manifesto that delve into Roger's life from the age of 13 through 19, when he finally leaves the nest and attends college in Santa Barbara. He was not a student at the University of California, Santa Barbara, which I was under the impression when the story happened. He went to Santa Barbara Community College. Roger never excelled at school, though he thought he was the most brilliant guy on the planet. He thought he was intellectual and worldly and well-traveled and scholarly, but he wasn't. He was mediocre, and that's being generous. We will get to see him go through his teen years in part two, and I've already read it, and it's like seriously watching a train wreck in slow motion. So look for that in the upcoming days. Please feel free to join the California Dreaming discussion page on Facebook. Join and like the pages. I again need to give a big huge thank you to the administrator and moderators of the page. Darren, Lisa, Valerie, Crystal, and Randy. I'm very appreciative of the time you're willing to take to help drum up conversations, post thought-provoking questions, and all you do to keep the page a fun place to be. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming has created a Patreon, and I want to thank everyone who has been so kind as to donate to the show. Every little bit helps me bring more and better content for all of you, and I'm doing all that I can to make that happen. 
For as little as $1 a month, you can access all of the bonus content on our Patreon page. There is one item up there for a slightly higher tier level, but mostly everything on there is for everyone who jumps in on it any level. This month so far, I've released the Tale of Jonestown, the mass death of the People's Temple followers and Jim Jones in the South American country of Guyana. So if you're fascinated with that story, visit our Patreon page and sign up. And of course, if you would like to make a one-time donation towards the creation of this show, we also have a PayPal using our email, californiapod at yahoo.com. Thank you again for the continued support, and all of these links are in the show notes. California Dreaming also has a merchandise store. There are two designs available. I'm not the most creative person in the world, so if anyone out there who may be artistically inclined or who might have a design in mind for the show, I'd love to add more options to the store. And if you submit a design and we pick it to add to the store, I'll send you a gift of one item from there with your original design emblazoned on it. There's coffee mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, phone cases, pillows, tote bags. So check out the merchandise store on www.orbitaljigsaw.com or click on the link in the show notes. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are proud to be a part of an amazing group of podcasts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, Historium, 41 Owned, Vox Arcana, and The Podience. And if you visit our website, you will find all of us, our network blog, as well as the merchandise store I just told you about. And we've got much more coming your way very, very soon. Visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for being here with me on this milestone episode, The Big Five O. Keep your eyes on your feeds for part two of this story. And until next time, sweet dreams. Nikki T here to tell you about my new Arkansas-focused true crime podcast. I'll be covering lesser-known cases out of the natural state. So join me on Mondays for all new episodes. You can find Strictly Homicide Podcast on most podcatchers, including iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, Stitcher, and more. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon by searching for Strictly Homicide Podcast and on Twitter at Strictly H-M-I-C-I-D-E. Y'all stay safe. I'm Mo Blackwell, the host of Targeted, True Crime, Domestic Violence. We'll investigate one case of family violence each season using academic research to interpret the events so that we can become better advocates. Join us as we spotlight the death of four-year-old Militia Gibson from her stepfather's abuse, delve into her family situation, break down the trial of her parents, and examine how her murder in 1976 led to changes in social service departments around the United States. Is there something we can learn about family violence through examining her murder? I think there is. She wasn't the only one in the house who was being abused.